Welcome to our 50th podcast for Thanks for Your Service. Our focus is on historical topics relating to the Australian military. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Just search for Thanks for Your Service. Our website is www.thanksforyourservice.net and you can email us at info at thanksforyourservice.net. Anzac Day 2022 is just a week away and about 4.30am on Sunday the 25th of April 1915 the first Australian boats approached Anzac Cove. But who were the first ashore? Peter Burgess has written a book on the subject. So joining us on the line from Bribie Island in Queensland is author Peter Burgess to talk about his book. Peter, about 4.30am on Sunday the 25th of April 1915, the first Anzacs landed at Gallipoli. Who were they? Well, um, they, were, they, were, they were chiefly uh, Queenslanders, South Australians and Western Australians. Um, that day, 16,000 Australians and New Zealanders came ashore but uh, in the initial landing, there were 4,000 divided into two waves. And the first wave that reached the shore at about 4.30 um, and that landed at Anzac Cove and around the headland there uh, was composed of um, Queensland's 9th Battalion, uh, their A and B companies, and two companies from South Australia's 10th Battalion and two companies from Western Australia's 11th Battalion. And from these, it's generally agreed that the first few boats to land were from um, Queensland's 9th Battalion. Dr Bean, uh, Australia's official war historian, observed very early on the piece that uh, from the day of the landing, the earliest traditions were that um, priority was given to the 9th Battalion. Um, And today, there are many records that exist that back this up. And I think... um, confidently identified that uh, the 9th Battalion were the first boats to land at Gallipoli. Your book is titled The First Ashore, The Stories of Our First Anzacs. Why is it important to recognise those who were first ashore? Yeah, that's that's a good question that's often asked. Um, And um, I I agree that the the landing at Gallipoli was definitely not a foot race to be first ashore. Um, It was a collective action that um, is very special because it promoted mateship and, and, and self-sacrifice. Um, and these guys that were in the first boat were no more heroic than the 16,000 other Anzacs that followed them ashore that day. However, um, for many reasons, I think it's important to recognise these men. Um, for, firstly, this might sound a little bit strange, but I think they're significant because they were ordinary. Uh, they came from ordinary backgrounds, uh, ordinary Queensland families, um, that th- they are a representative sample of all ordinary Anzacs. Um, they received an unexpected honour of being the first ashore and that placed them in the spotlight and allows us today to um, get an intimate and personal insight into the war experience of a small group of ordinary Queenslanders. Also, History shows us that in almost every aspect of human endeavour, we bestow some level of fame or esteem on the first achievers. Um, there, is, there are endless examples of this. You know, the, the first um, person to swim an ocean, to climb a mountain, to, to reach a destination. Um, others always follow behind with equal or greater achievements, but we persist in honouring the first. 
Now, given the importance of Gallipoli to Australia's identity and sense of nationhood, it is, I think, therefore justifiable and undeniably important that the soldiers of the first boat ashore get some sort of recognition. And thirdly, um, perhaps more importantly, more importantly, was um, the fact that by recognising the first ashore, we're, res- we're given respect to the extreme interest and passion that World War I diggers and the post-war public had for who was the, the first ashore. Um, they were passionate about this topic, the World War I diggers. Um, it, is, it was for them, it was a serious and emotive matter of battalion and unit pride. Uh, it said whenever they gathered together and if the topic was brought up, it was sure to rouse argument, claim and counterclaim and anecdotes and whatever. But um, and, and also in the wider community, as early as August 1915, newspapers around Australia were posting stories about who was first ashore. And um, and over the decades, scores of people came, before, came um, forward to claim the honour of being first ashore. Many of them obviously weren't. Um, in 1915, Joseph Stratford, Sergeant Joseph Stratford, was celebrated throughout Australia um, as the first ashore, first man to, to come ashore. Um, it, our school in Queensland was even named after him, and a suburb in, Can- in Cairns was named after him. Um, uh, there were Newspapers at the time were full of claims and counterclaims about who was first ashore. It was a popular debate that raged for years. Mm. Um, it, but then uh, around about 1930s, Dr Bean, the pressure was placed on Dr Bean, the uh, official war historian, to make a judgment. And he, his judgment was that Mirabara's Lieutenant Duncan Chapman was the first man to touch shore. Since then, uh, many communities like Mirabara and the and many Queensland families have maintained a proud connection to Chapman and the Anzacs that were in his boat. I believe that by honouring the first of shore, therefore, that we can promote and um, extend that connection that these these people have to all Queenslanders. So I, I think these guys, they were ordinary men and they were, they were ordinary Anzacs, but they are important to us because they give us an understanding and appreciation of what all Anzacs went through. And you mentioned Bean, and he observed that lots of people thought they were in the first boat. So how did you yeah. go about in terms of identifying who they were? Yeah, it, it, it's not an easy task. There's decades of heated debate about it, uh, about who was there, um, attest to. Um, there are many eyewitness reports that have been, uh, that are available to us in letters, diaries, and newspaper uh, reports that refer to who was first ashore but unfortunately, they're full of contradictions. Um, for ex- a, a good example is just one year after Gallipoli, uh, a private Percival Young gave a detailed eyewitness description of the landing. It was published in a school newspaper. Um, his accounts are excellent. It, it, it's, um, it's very detailed, but in many aspects of it are highly improbable. Uh, he reported that Lieutenant Chapman was the first man to step ashore, but he also claimed that six of the 9th Battalion's highest ranking officers, Colonel Lee, Major Robertson, Major Salisbury, Captain Ryder and Dr Butler were all in that same boat. Um, now, Colonel Lee was the commander of the 9th, Major Robinson was second in charge and next in precedence was uh, Major Salisbury. Now, such a concentration of leadership in one boat it seems highly unlikely it would be a 
a military strategy that would be inherently dangerous. Um, and, and also proving that um, Percival Young was wrong, uh, there are accounts by Robertson, by Salisbury, Major Salisbury, and by Dr. Butler that um, Colonel Butler that say that uh, that they themselves say that they were not in the first boat. Uh, and also, as another example, there's a um, is, is back to Lieutenant Sergeant Joseph uh, Sergeant Joseph Stratford, um, who was mistakenly put forward as the first man ashore. Joseph Stratford was a cane cutter from Lismore, but served in the 9th Battalion. Unfortunately, or tragically, he was killed soon after coming ashore and therefore could not authenticate the claim that he was the first ashore. Um, he, eyewitness accounts report that he made her, after landing, he made an heroic charge across the beach to Turkish gun positions that were nearby. He managed to bayonet two Turks, but then himself was shot. It, it was, it, the charge was heroic, but the description of it seems to indicate that it could not have occurred at Anzac Cove, where the first wave landed. The soldiers coming ashore there were confronted with a sheer cliff face, which they, when they reached, they momentarily, momentarily took refuge um, under before commencing their charge up the steep slope. Uh, it's more probable that Stratford's bayonet charge occurred further south at the northern end of Brighton Beach, where the second wave landed. Mm. Um, that there the terrain was lower and it would have allowed a, a rapid charge, a, a, a um, haste, haste uh, a, a, yeah, a quick movement across the beach. To, and there were Turkish guns that were within 60 yards of the beach there. And there's further evidence that Stratford was also not in the first wave. comes from uh, his friend, Private Norman, uh, Norman Parker, who reported to a newspaper, I think it was a Northern New South Wales paper, um, that he observed he was in the third boat behind Stratford and he observed Stratford coming ashore and, and he, he described the, his heroic charge. Um, but he said that they set out from the HMS Spiegel. Now, that was one of the destroyers that carried the troops ashore in the second wave. Mm. So yeah, we, we, we can, without doubt, rule out Stratford as uh, being the first man ashore. He, he possibly was the first man ashore in the second wave, um, and that is quite likely. Um, in the 1930s, pressure was placed on Dr Charles Bean to settle the argument about who was first ashore, and he, he interviewed many soldiers to try and determine this and was perplexed that they all had different, different accounts of the landing. Um, no one seemed to have the same account. Um, he concluded that it was in, perhaps impossible for these soldiers to give an accurate account of what they witnessed at the landing because of the darkness, um, the geography of the peninsula of, of Anzac Cove uh, uh, made it difficult to determine some landed around the peninsula um, and there was absolute chaos at the landing. So all of those confused people's um, recalls of, of what actually happened. Um, however, there's one thing he did note that Every soldier knew their whereabouts when the sound of the first gunshot was fired. There had been so much tension in the previous hour, half hour leading up to the to their actual landing, that you know, they were all eager, waiting for this first the reaction of the enemy with the first gunshot, and um, that sound became indelibly marked on the consciousness of every um, soldier that landed there that day. Um, and from that, he could use, being decided or determined that he could use that as a crucial factor to determine a soldier's position. At the, at the landing. Um, he went back and made many more interviews and found that there was only one group of soldiers who claimed they were on the beach when that first shot 
shattered the silence. Um, in his preface to his 1941 edition to the history of the war, been concluded that there was no other case that had been heard of in which another boat had already landed and had begun to throw off its packs. And he determined that Lieutenant Duncan Chapman was the first Anzac ashore at Gallipoli. This fact was backed up, had already been um, stated in many diaries and letters by soldiers um, like Sergeant Butler Coe, Private Bostock, yeah, quite quite a number of things. But um, And then in, in 1941, another historian, um, N.K. Harvey, attempted to identify who landed with Chapman in that first boat. And he interviewed the surviving 9th Battalion soldiers and created a list of 18 soldiers, uh, which he published in his book um, from Anzac to the Hindenburg Line. Um, in 1954, a few years later, he extended that list to 19 uh, by adding Colonel Butler, um, the battalion's medical officer. Um, in the 1950s, the using further evidence corroborated by other veterans, the 9th Battalion Association added three more names to the list. That took the list to a total of 22 that they believed were, were in the first boat. For my research for the book, I, I carefully looked at each of these claims and unfortunately concluded that two of them did not belong. Lance Corporal Thomas Helmuth and Colonel Butler. Both these men made statements after the war that clearly indicated, without a doubt, that they were some distance from the beach when the first shot was fired. There's no doubt of it that, that they shouldn't be on the list. Um, without going into all the details of the, um, of the um, evidence. A careful examination was then made of all the other recorded claims that I could find of soldiers who said that they were in that first boat. And six more names were found um, that I'm pretty confident, I'm very confident, can be added to the list. They fill the, fill the criteria of being members of Lieutenant Chapman's number three platoon, or they were members of the battalion scout contingent, they each made compelling testimonies that they were in the first boat. And more importantly, they, their evidence that they were in the first boat was corroborated by one other source, either directly or indirectly. So I, I'm pretty confident that six additions are, are there. There are, are a few others, but, well, the boat supposedly held uh, 30 people, or around about 30 people. Uh, so there are that's 26 we're up to. And so that's, there's still four more and there were um, uh, among those other claimants that I looked at uh, notable were uh, Private R.S. Davies and Private W.D. Jones they um, had very um, good uh, testimonies that they, that they were in the first boat but unfortunately there was no corroborating evidence from anyone else to, that um, said that they man. should be included. You said before that you know that the men in the first boat were representative of all Anzacs that landed that day and a sample of ordinary Queenslanders but they were also exceptional in many different ways. Can you tell us a little say about two of them? Yeah um, well yeah, that's that's difficult because they were exceptional in so many, many ways and this was a surprising part of, um, of my research because they were ordinary guys and they were just um, from ordinary backgrounds but I um, found that they the more I researched them the they were surprisingly uh, revealed that they were noteworthy. They carried out many noteworthy achievements, also either on the battlefield or after the war. That seemed very disproportionate to their small number. Um, the heroic actions were numerous. Uh, there's Lieutenant Heyman and Sergeant Fred Coe on the first day, 
um, I, I can talk about them later. They, they did, did a lot of amazing things. Um, and there were commendations that three other members of the um, first boat received for recommendations for honours for their um, Sergeant Robert McKenzie for his actions at Gallipoli, Sergeant Sam McKenzie's brother for his actions at uh, Rouge de Boo, trying to um, save uh, uh, wounded soldiers, Lieutenant Fox at Mouquet Farm. Um, and also more than half the boat um, received promotions, significant promotions. Um, six, six from the first boat, six from these 26 men became sergeants, five became lieutenants, one was... Um, Duncan Chapman became a major, was promoted to major, and Fred Fox rose through the ranks very quickly to become a captain at the age, young age of 23. Um, also, at home, many of them proved to be um, extraordinary in their achievements and dedication to service and community duty. Um, some, many of them, their lives folded also, and uh, they suffered, or they all suffered health problems. But just looking at two, as you asked for, um, Corporal Claude Henderson, later Lieutenant Henderson, um, after recovering from a shrapnel wound that he received on the first day, um, he was rep repatriated home. And um, for the next four, six years of his life, with incredible energy and dedication, he worked tirelessly to improve the lives of veterans and the dependents of deceased soldiers. He took leadership roles in just about every wartime project and organisation that existed in Brisbane. Um, it, upon discharge from the army, he, he had to get a job, so he, he found work as a clerk in the Queensland with the Queensland War Council, which was an organisation set up by the government to assist returned soldiers. Um, soon after taking up that job, he took the unpaid position of secretary of the council's busiest committee, the Employment Committee. And on that committee, he worked tirelessly, he, he registering soldiers uh, for work, personally interviewing them to, for the, to assess their needs, and then and also lobbying business to um, get job opportunities for them. It was a huge workload, but over the next 12 months, he also became secretary of the War Council's other committees, the Medical Committee, the Land Settlement Committee, the Education Committee, and the Anzac Cottages Committee. By 1917, January 1917, he was um, superintendent of all war council activities throughout Queensland. Uh, soldier settlement schemes, vocational training programs, construction of the Anzac cottages for war widows, uh, plus fundraising enterprises such as the Golden Casket, they all fell under his responsibility. Um, and through his work, he improved the lives of thousands of veterans. Um, he became renowned through the veteran community in Queensland and especially because of his work with employment. As well as that, he found time to be one of the founders of the Queensland Returned Soldiers Association. He was its first secretary, processing 600 memberships in the first three months of its operation. Um, he was also a founder of the RSSILA, which was the forerunner of today's RSL. Um, for his work in, in that regard, he was made a life member. Um, he also established the Soldiers Residential Club in, in Brisbane in 1916, or, or helped um, establish that club. Um, but his greatest achievement out of many achievements was his effective implementation of, a, of Queensland's first soldier repatriation system. When the federal government took over soldier repatriation as its duties, um, they used Claude Henderson, the model that Claude Henderson had established in um in Queensland as their model.
in 19, and then in 1918, Claude was placed in charge of the new federal Department of Repatriation in Queensland. Another member of the first boat, who was also a significant leader in post-war community, was Private W.A. Fisher, known as Andy Fisher. He was a sometimes controversial figure, um, he, but he, he has to be admired because he returned from the war with this powerful determination to make a difference. Like Claude, he was totally dedicated to public service and to veteran welfare. He was one of the founders of the Queensland Returned Soldiers Association and of the RSS ILA. Um, he became the first treasurer of the Queensland branch, but he was ambitious to do more. And by 1917, he had attained the powerful position of State Secretary of the Queensland RSS ILA. And this was a position he held for five years. And while there, he was a vocal and very radical advocate for veterans um, in the conscription campaigns, he campaigned very loudly and strongly uh, for conscription, and um, he encouraged open hostility to anti-war groups and workers' organisations. He was actually a leader of many vigilante groups that um, and did some undercover surveillance work. Um, he took a role in the formation of the Commonwealth Police Force uh, and its operation in Queensland. Commonwealth Police Force was formed by the federal government because they were a little bit concerned about some of the um, what they perceived as unloyal activities that were occurring in um, Queensland. Fifty plainclothes plain um, detectives, officers were um, established with the first Commonwealth Police Force, and they were pretty well. All of them were placed in Queensland, and they were selected from the veteran community by Andy Fisher. He was, Andy was also a prominent leader in the Red Flag riots, that was the anti-Russian riots that occurred in Brisbane in 1919. So both him and Claude were prominent and well-known figures in the community throughout Brisbane um, and Queensland. And um, But there were many others in the first bay that also took leadership roles in their local communities. It's, um, it's quite amazing, actually. Um, it's as though perhaps they... I don't, for their small numbers, it's it's hard to um, understand. But perhaps um, the theory, my theory at least, is that they were inspired by their identities. They had proud identities at first, as first ashore original Anzacs, and um, that heightened their sense of dedication to perhaps duty and and public service. Yeah. And and your book details not only the experience of the first ashore during World War One, so through Gallipoli and those who survived Gallipoli went on to France, etc. But it also covers their repatriation and post-war life. And what really struck me about the book is that for a lot of them, their post-war life was just as hard as as battle. What was it like for many of the returning veterans? Yeah, yeah. Sadly, for many of them, um, like my, most veterans, but for many of the guys from the first boat, the war never really ended for them. Um, they returned home to lives that were marred by unemployment, ill health, disabilities, and lots of misunderstanding and, a, and, and often a sense of isolation. Um, incidents of trauma and shell shock were very common. Um, almost every me- member of the first boat returned with some degree of trauma or shell shock. And this was one of the worst disabilities, I think, that war could inflict because the condition was much, at that time, the condition was much misunderstood. Um, Sufferers often faced shame rather than the honour they deserved as Anzacs. Um, 
shell shock, like all mental illnesses at the time, was seen as a weakness that should not be talked about. Um, it's kind of hidden away. Well, in comparison, Anzacs with physical wounds were regarded as heroes, and that often these shell shock veterans were left isolated and, and to a degree shunned. There, there are many examples in the first boat of this happening. One is Sergeant Walter Latimer. Uh, he later became Lieutenant Walter Latimer. During the war, he was known to be a skilled rifleman, courageous, popular, and a dependable officer who was described as cool in battle. And at home, he was seen as a devoted family man. His wife regarded him as a kind and good husband and father of their four children. But sadly, while serving on the Western Front, his nerves were shattered. In 1917, he left the front as an absolute wreck, unable to speak. He was shaking uncontrollably. He had nightmares that had prevented him from sleeping for the last six nights, I think it was. He was a mess. Uh, he was repatriated home, but with steely determination, incredibly, six months later, he returned. He was back on the front, and within no time, he suffered another breakdown. When Walter finally did return home, he was a depressed, nervous, veteran plagued by mental ill health and lots of neuroses but because of the stigma that society associated with mental illness at the time it was easier for his family and his friends to be told that he had died and this became a lie that was continued in that family for generations similarly other soldiers like corporal frank loud were not given the respect and honor that they deserved as Anzacs. Frank endured four active years active service and his well-written Gallipoli diary has survived as one of the most important personal records of Gallipoli. Yet Frank's post-war life was plagued by severe shell shock. And unfortunately, in official records, we see that he suffered a ridicule and a level of ridicule and a lack of empathy that many shall shell shock victims suffered, of course. Um, his repatriation case file has cruel and unsubstantiated notes such as um, uh, says things like, this man is very introspective. He has a circumstantial tale of woe. He is not very intelligent. Um, it was as though he was to blame for his condition, not the war. It was his fault that he was how he was. In many ways, the repatriation system actually failed these and other returned tickers. In the beginning, during the war years and immediately afterwards, there was great achievements made in repatriation, um, particularly under the stewardship of um, Claude Henderson. But as the numbers of returned soldiers increased and the states relinquished, relinquished their control to the federal government, the system became overburdened and was definitely less effective. Soldier settlement schemes, um, like the one at Birabarum, promised a fair go for veterans but they failed miserably. Um, and we, a number of the guys from the first boat um, joined the soldier settlement scheme. Uh, one was Ted Tietzel. Um, in 19, he, he had, in 19, it was 1919 when he joined the soldier settlement scheme at Birabarum. He had returned from war in poor health after multiple gassings, two wounds, and a lot of mental trauma. Um, but, he, and, but he was desperate for employment, and um, he was given a 50% war pension which was insufficient to support his uh, newly arrived English wife and child. So he took uh, uh, his young family to Birabum and, and was granted a 30-acre block of virgin country up there. Unfortunately, for men like Ted, with their enormous war disabilities, 
the work of establishing a farm was incredibly difficult. They had to clear the bush, they had to build fences, they had to build their own residence, and then they, and they had to cultivate the land. Mm. Um, ten, ten months after Ted arrived there, he, he put out a desperate plea to the repatriation um, board for help. Um, his, his health had deteriorated, and cultivation, cultivation on his farm was at a standstill. There were no um, banana suckers to plant. Um, anyhow, he... he he was um, surviving. He was surviving um, just on odd jobs that he could get in wherever he could. Um, but his plea for um, assistance was refused, and, um, and so with a war pension of seventeen shillings a week, I think he was getting, um, he walked off the land um, after two and a half years trying to make a go of it. Um, and another one was Frank Uden d- down in New South Wales. He was a ninth battalion soldier from the from the first boat. Um, he, he received a grant of 93 acres at Rosebank near Byron Bay and um, with his wife and his young baby attempted to um, turn the undeveloped land into a dairy farm. But the property was too small um, and he's, it was impossible to sell these milk because there were no roads. The, the, three years after he took up the land, he was still complaining to the council that um, his farm had no access roads. Mm. Um, so after six years struggle, he, he left the farm as well. And another major problem for returned soldiers was um, the difficulty in gaining any kind of work. If they had um, disabilities, uh, work was very incredible, incredibly difficult to get. And there was, by today's standards, there was very little financial assistance given to them. Lieutenant Latimer had three nervous breakdowns uh, and he was granted a meagre pension, 25% war pension. Um, he had four children. It was impossible to, to survive on a 25% pension with four children. Likewise, Frank Loud, um, he had, after his four years war service and multiple gassings, he, he left uh, the war with a 50% pension, which was which was better. But 10 years later, his health seemed to be improving. Life was going okay for himself. And he thought he, he, things were going okay. And um, he foolishly decided to cancel his pension. The following years, his health, health uh, problems started to return. He applied to have his pension reinstated and it was denied and for 30 years he fought with the, the repatriation board to get his pension back again but was unsuccessful and that and that yeah. seemed to be a consistent story through yeah, through yeah, many yeah. Of them. over and over over yeah, and over again repeated. and yeah, peter repeated. what 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 motivated you to write the book uh well i i was my, my grandfather was one of the always told a story i didn't get to know him but he always told the story and it was a family tradition that he was in the first boat ashore um and I was always fascinated by the stories that my family had passed down about him. So uh, that, that, that spurred me to start research. And um, unfortunately, the more I researched, I found that um, there was nothing to, to, to suggest that he was actually in the first boat. Um, it, you know, there was no definite proof anyhow. Uh, so, but, but then as I looked at the sto- my research started and I started uh, looking at the stories of these guys, they were just... So inspiring and fascinating that I continued, and six years later, um, I put it all together, and uh, that's where and it is today. And it's a great read. Now, and finally, where can people purchase the book? Well, online at on the book's website at www.thefirstashore.com. You can just follow the the prompts and um, purchase it online. Um, also, can I name the bookstores? Yeah, please go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, in Brisbane, um, there are a number of excellent bookstores that have taken it on uh, copies, um, books at Stones, at the 
on at Stones Corner, Riverbend Books at Belimba, the Abbott Reader at West End, uh, the Museum of Brisbane Bookshop in the City Hall, the Little Known Bookshop at Twinham, and the Ninth Battalion War Memorial Museum. The books can be purchased at all those places. And in Duncan's home, Chapman's hometown of Maryborough at the City Hall at the Visitor Information Centre, and in Charters Towers and other places Duncan Chapman lived at the very good Grand Secrets Bookshop. Mm. And in Gympie, uh, Twigger Books, which, which was sadly damaged, um, went under in the water in the floods, but hopefully will be opening soon. And on the Sunshine Coast, coast at uh, the bookshop at Caloundra, where I'll be signing books, actually, this Saturday. Right. Um, and the book is The First Ashore, The Stories of Our First Anzacs. And Peter Burgess, thank you so much for your time today. It's much appreciated. Thank you, David, for the opportunity. Great. That's the podcast for today. We're keen to hear your feedback. And if you're listening to us via iTunes or other podcast apps, please leave a review. Your reviews help others find our podcast. And you can help support this podcast via Patreon or Buy Me A Coffee. The links are on our website and Facebook page and your support helps us with the production of this podcast. Thanks for listening.